in, pre- in preparing this passage for this morning, I was struck by a couple of realities. Number one, some of what's talked about in this passage from 1 Peter chapter 3 is seen as cold, stark words on paper that don't translate a heart of love or concern or compassion. I don't believe that that's the case in the way that it was written, in the approach that Peter took to communicating what's in this chapter. And I will try my hardest to not let that be also the feeling that comes off as this passage is explored as we look at it together. Number two, there's a reality that many of you sitting in this room are not married. You're young, perhaps that's in the future for you. Or perhaps you're in a situation where that opportunity was taken away from you. And I want this morning not to be a cold difficult reminder of that reality, but I want this morning to be an embracing of bigger than just the marriage topic itself, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, and what it means to have responsibilities in the relationships that we have with one another, both within the marriage covenant and within the community of faith as believers and co-heirs of the inheritance of Jesus Christ. With that said, let's talk a little bit about 1 Peter. It's been a while. September was the last time that we engaged the text of 1 Peter. And uh, to bring you back up to speed and remind you, Peter is writing to those that he identifies as elect sojourners, those who are chosen by God, who are walking a path of life in that which is not their home currently. It's an accurate description for his audience at that time period, and it's an accurate description for us today. These elect sojourners are being tested. They're being tested by trials, and they're being tested by suffering. And there's a purpose, in a sense, to what Peter is writing, because he's causing them to evaluate themselves, to ensure that their suffering is, in fact, for doing what is good, and not because of sin. Because as this book teaches us, there is both grace and joy in suffering for doing what is good. We left off at the end of chapter 2 in the middle of a carryover discussion related to relationships and submission, where certain peoples are placing or ranking themselves under the authority of other people And Peter started the discussion in chapter 2 by specifically talking to servants and their role of submission underneath the authority and rank of their masters. In this passage, he will move into the context of families, speaking specifically to husbands and wives, and the greater community of believers as a whole. Would you please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word from 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 through 12. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless 
For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Thank you, Lord, for your living and life-giving word. May we be changed by it today. Amen. As you can see, there's a distinct separation of sections in this passage. Verses 1 through 7, specifically dealing with the relationship between husbands and wives. And I have summarized this section of the passage, love responsively. Verses 8 through 12, the other half of the passage for us this morning, talks about the nature of life in the community of faith. And I have summarized this section with the words, live repentantly. So, fancy. But that's our setup this morning. Love responsively and live repentantly. Let's jump right in. Verses 1 through 7, love responsively. Peter begins with a message to the women. He has two of them. Message number one, be subject to, and by that we mean to submit yourself or rank yourself under your own man. Now, Clearly, this is in the context of husbands and wives. Why would I begin this thing by saying this is a message to women and that you ought to subject, or Peter says, be subject to your own man? Well, the answer is because in in the language, there's not a distinction between women and wives and men and husbands. It's the context that drives if the discussion is keen on the idea of wife versus woman or husband versus man. And this is why you see some of the like lack of clarity when it comes to things like the discussion about elders and deacons, and then it throws women in there. Is this the wife of an elder or a deacon, or is this a deaconess that's being talked about? Because there's not a specific differential of language when it comes to the two. You didn't really care about that, so let's jump right in. Wives, women, be subject to your own man, verses 1 and 2. Now, we're not going to stand up here and act like we've never heard this idea before. We're not going to act like we need to reinvent the wheel or go back and undo something that's been done. This is an intrinsic part of the creation narrative, the creation story, and the ordered setting of God's creation. The pattern has been established as far back as creation itself, in the garden. And that is that man has a specific role as representative head, and woman has a specific role as the one who is to complete him and be his help meet. This is reinforced throughout history, as we read through the Old Testament, the people of Israel, and it's reinforced in the New Testament as well. It is not a statement of worth, It is not a statement of value. It is a statement of role. Peter puts a new purpose and spin to it here. He says in verse 1, If some of them, husbands, men, refuse to obey. Now this is an oversimplification. Because the idea here is not just obey. The idea here is active refusing to be persuaded by the truth of something. So if a husband, a man, is actively refusing to be persuaded by the truth, and in this case it says the word, that is logos. Now when you hear that, some of your ears perk up because you know that in John, logos is used to refer to Christ, word with a capital W. But that's not necessarily where you have to go whenever you come across Logos. The idea of Logos is a completed argument, a completed revelation. It's a completed statement of fact and reality. 
a revelation of truth, if you will. And the revelation of truth here is the completed argument of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. But there are men in this scenario who are actively refusing to be persuaded by this completed argument of the truth of the gospel. And so the good news is that when a woman, as Peter lays out, walks in obedience to her role of submission, she plays a role in his soul being gained. And that's an interesting word that's used here because it means an exchange. It's the idea of trading up for something better. So he, and notice too the language that's used. It's not an if language, it's a will and when language. Kind of brings new meaning to the whole idea that a a man shall be, oh boy, my brain just blanked on that one, uh, sanctified through his wife. The reason for this is that the man who sees a woman rightly embracing her role has been an eyewitness. He's been an eyewitness to what Peter refers to as the God-fearing and holy upturning. This idea for conduct is the idea of turning up from what was lesser to what is greater. So she is upturning, an upturning change in her behavior. And this, according to Peter, will have the consequence and benefit of speaking to and leading to the truth. That's message number one. Message number two, this is where things get a little interesting. Message number two, I would say this way. Peter calls upon women, wives, to order yourself internally. Order yourself internally, not by external elaboration. This concept actually connects to the concept in verses 1 and 2. 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 are technically and actually in the Greek language one sentence. There is no division at the end of verse 2 and then a whole new topic that's entered into in verse 3. It continues the idea, this running idea of the husband seeing his wife previously described as a God-fearing and holy woman in her upturning behavior, seeing his wife not order herself by the external. And literally, that's, that's all it says, the external. But there's a three-part description to what the external is. Part one. Part one is this idea of plated braiding of the hair. Okay? Now, this is interesting because this word is found exactly one time in Scripture, and it's right here in 1 Peter. So it's hard to use a cross-reference to understand exactly what it means. And for that reason, we go to the root of the word. So what's exactly happening in this idea? The root of this word is the idea of weaving gold. Weaving gold through the braiding. So what we're talking about here is that a woman should not order herself, hold on to that because we'll get to that in a second, a woman should not order herself by extensive, ostentatious showing of wealth as it relates to the braiding of her hair. Secondly, he mentions this idea of what would be better described or best described as wrapping herself in ornamental gold. Again, this word, this idea, which is translated in the ESV for us as putting on of gold jewelry, is a bit more than just putting on jewelry. Again, this word is found one time exactly in Scripture, and so again, cross-referencing not helpful for us, so we go back to the root. The root of this word is the idea of putting up a wall, literally surrounding yourself as it leads to your protection and identity. So for a woman to take, and the word here is not just simply gold, it's excessive ornamental gold. And to wrap that around herself for her protection and identity. 
Peter says that's not how a woman should order herself. And finally, the third one is the idea of, I think it's rendered, uh, clothing you wear. The verb here is to put on clothing, which sounds pretty straightforward. Surely that'll be in Scripture more than just one time, but it's not. This is the only place in Scripture where this word is found, and its root has the idea of not just putting clothes on, but the idea of being invested in clothing. Literally, the word means to sink into clothing. So there's this idea of picturing, validating, causing your image of yourself to be based on what you wear, based on your clothing. This three-part description by Peter is basically communicating the idea that a woman's ordering of herself should not be based on that which is external, that which is extravagant, that which is elaborate. You've heard me say it several times now, so let's pause and let's clarify this thing. Because in your translation, probably, and in the translation that I read, the word says adorning, and it says it twice in those two verses. But here's the deal. The word that's in there translated adorning, you're not going to see this coming, is the Greek word cosmos, world. For God so loved the world, cosmos, that he gave his only son, John three sixteen, cosmos, world. And what's interesting is 185 times out of the 186 times that the word cosmos is found in scripture, The translation is world. And then we show up in 1 Peter chapter 3 and we get adorning. Now, you like me might be like, where in the world, cosmos, did that come from? Well, the idea is this. Cosmos also serves as the root for several other words. And one of those words is the word cosmetics. So here we go. Now, it's a little bit of a stretch, but the word cosmetic serves as the root of, uh, the, the word cosmos serves as the root of the word cosmetic. And I realized that I just, I didn't put that in here, so now I have to try to remember it. Oh, here we go. The idea would be the, uh, let, me, let me pause on that for a second, I'm sorry. This idea of cosmos, which is translated quite often in our English Bible, world, okay, it's not found twice in these verses, it's only found once. And in its parsing of the language and speech, it's literally the subject of verses 3 and 4. The concept of cosmos is bigger than just the globe of the earth. The concept of cosmos is the entirety of an ordered system. It's bigger than just earth. It's bigger than the people who reside on earth. It's bigger even than the entirety of the universe and all that inhabit it. Cosmos is the entirety of the ordered system that is sovereignly established and cared for by God. I'm reminded of the lyrics to the liturgical doxology referred to as the Gloria Patri. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, amen. Now, we've read the back of the book and we know that there is a doing away of the old heavens and the old earth and what is called a new heavens and a new earth. So this idea of world without end must be something more than the terrestrial globe upon which we trot. And it is. It is the entirety of the created order. The ordered system sovereignly established and cared for by God. And in the context here in 1 Peter, the idea is not adornment as the root of cosmetics, the system of the face, But it's the way in which a woman orders herself. The ordered system by which a woman sees her value, perceives the totality of her life, her system. Now, some may argue, 
Hold up, Brody. Take a step back. Who's writing these words? Peter. What do we know about Peter? Peter was a fisherman, for goodness sake. You're telling me that a fisherman is going to come in here with this high-level, grand view of the concept of ordering and apply it to a woman in the way that she views her life and roll out these, a woman ought to order herself in a way that is not primarily external and about elaboration of the external. Yes, I am, and here's why. Peter, as a fisherman, understands the idea of an ordered system. He understands the idea of an ecosystem. It is his livelihood. The ordered system of the ocean, the sea, and the way that everything works within it. Nature itself. How to read the indications of the weather to know whether it would be right and safe to be out on the lake that day or not. Peter understands the idea of an ordered system. And you know what else? We learn in scripture that he's married. And so what that means is he is familiar with the depth and complexity of what goes into a woman's understanding of herself, perception of her role, ordering of her world. So yes, though he might be a fisherman, and maybe not the greatest linguist or the greatest understanding of theology man, he understands the idea of ordered system and how it would apply to a woman. So her ordering, according to Peter, is not to be external, but instead, as he writes, to be the work of the hidden, that being the inward, secret. The word here is the idea, the root word for crypt. The hidden and secret person of the heart. And that idea of heart is the idea of the center of our being. It is where our will and our mind reside. And this, he says, is built on a spirit. This is the idea of the non-physical force. That which is not physical about us, which makes us alive and connects us with God. This spirit, he says, is described as, number one, gentle. That word is also translated throughout scripture as meek. It doesn't mean weakness. I promise you that. What it indicates is the idea actually of strength that is under control. So her spirit is gentle and quiet. And the idea of quiet there is not a shut your mouth idea. It is in fact a stillness and inner calm and inner peace. So according to Peter, in ordering, a woman ought to order herself, not based on what is outside, temporal, elegant, beautiful perhaps, but it doesn't connect with the reality of who God is and the role that he has played as sovereign orderer of her life. Instead, the inner, hidden inner person, that spirit which is described as strength under control, and calmness, stillness in the storm. That, Peter describes, is the spirit by which her ordering should happen. And that spirit is of great value in the face of God. That word for great value there, um, not the Walmart kind, by the way, <laughs> translated very precious in the ESV and probably similarly in your translation, that word is also used to describe the perfume that was broken and used to anoint Jesus in that beautiful story from the Gospels. Great value before the face of God. Then we come to the statement of the holy women of old. And what Peter's doing here is he is tying the role of submission to that of internal ordering. He's using the exact same language from verse 1. In fact, you kind of have bookends, verse 1 and verse 5. He cites Sarah, Abraham's wife, as the ultimate example. That's the purpose of bringing her up here. She is, in Peter's estimation, the ultimate example of one who has tied the role of submission to the ordering of her life in a way that follows gentleness and quietness. 
And he lays out that it is a blessing for women who embrace that same obedience to be identified as her daughters. Now, before you think I'm crazy, I want to stop and say, let's consider Sarah's situation and the struggle that she must have gone through in order to order herself in submission with a gentle and quiet spirit. Consider her life and what we know, leaving her homeland, the death of family members, childlessness, lying about her identity and her husband, moving to an unknown location, separation from remaining family with her nephew Lot, the promise of a child, the death of more family, and then many years of waiting for that promise of a child to come true. And then, once Isaac is born, every single crazy thing that happens after that. In all of this, her strength is held under control. She finds her internal stillness, and she submits to her Lord's direction, capital, lowercase l. Even though his directions may at some times be faulty, she does not flee in terror from that which causes her heart to flutter. That is the true meaning of the end of verse 6. Do not fear anything that is frightening. It's much bigger than that. It's do not flee in terror from that which causes your heart to flutter. And if there was a person whose story could be written with many things that would cause a heart to flutter, it would definitely be Sarah. This is responsive love on her part. She sets aside what might gladden her heart or delight her senses. And she orders herself in submission according to inner strength and truth. And that is the same responsive love that Peter calls upon the women of faith. To set aside what may gladden your heart or delight your senses in order to order yourself in submission according to inner strength and truth. Now, I do want to point out, because I was asked about this yesterday, inciting Sarah and commending Sarah and honoring those who would do as she did as her daughters, there's also a line in there about calling her husband Lord, lowercase l. Peter does not opt to go with that as well. So... Um, there is no necessity by which, husbands, you may force your wives to call you Lord. Not in the text. So now we reach verse 7 and we turn our attention to the men. And Peter has three messages for the men. And he does a really good job of condensing them into one verse. Because if you're a guy, six verses would be too much. And your mind would wander. <laughs> And you really can't think about that many things over that much space of language. And so I need three short, quick things to make this clear. And here they are. Message number one to the men. Be present, engaged, and continuously learning. Be present, engaged, and continuously learning. Peter says, live with your wife. Reads pretty simply in English. In the Greek, it means to dwell together with active engagement. It's not passive, can't be passive. Active engagement, dwelling together. And he uses this description in an understanding way. And what he's saying there is by the use of his word, I'm sorry, what he's saying. The idea there is translated according to knowledge. Now, there's several words for knowledge in the Greek. And they kind of bring you in different directions. One of those words for knowledge is the idea of knowing something as you know a fact. This is not that word. Men, you do not know your wife as though you know a fact. 
promise you that. This is the word for knowledge that is based on relationship and experience. And what that means is active, living, relationship, experience, not assumption, and definitely not static. Be present, engaged, and continuously learning because you are called to relate and live and dwell with your wife according to the knowledge of experience and relationship. Message number two. Buckle up. That's not the message. That's the warning. <laughs> message number two. Protect your wife's role and her value by pouring into her with wisdom. We are now going to unscramble what is realistically the worst translation of scripture that I've come across in my study in preparation for teaching and preaching. According to the ESV, and I'm picking on the ESV because that's what I chose to read. The ESV translates what will be this message by saying, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Okay? Let's tear this apart. Number one, showing honor to isn't even part of this phrase. It literally comes in the next one, the third message. So set that aside completely. Number two, the phrase, the woman, is not in here. There is, in fact, an adjective used, and the adjective means female. That's different than the woman. She is, in fact, a female. Figure that. Number three, there is no word the. She is a vessel, not the vessel. And finally, the correct translation is weak, not weaker. There is no comparison being made. None of the language is intended to show any kind of comparison. Men are not part of the discussion. It is solely focused on her. So when we strip away all the bad translating, what we're left with is the simple phrase, as a weak female vessel. Now some of you, that still bugs you, so let's walk through it. This idea of weak, what's translated weak here, the word is simple. It means literally without strength or vigor. It doesn't have to be translated weak. It can also be translated other ways. It can be translated frail. It can be translated fragile. And in some areas in scripture, it's translated sickly or sick because it's describing people that are sick. This is not a statement of worth. It's not a statement of value. It's a description of a word we haven't even talked about yet, the word vessel. And what this is emphasizing is that if the vessel is fragile, what do you need to do? You need to take care of it. So the emphasis point here is we are talking about something that must be cared for wisely. All right, so let's talk about vessel. In its simplest terms, a vessel is some kind of jar. It is something that is used to hold and pour out liquid. That's in its simplicity. Notice that Peter does not choose. Notice the argument by what's not there. What does Peter not choose to say? He doesn't choose to say weak partner. He uses vessel for a reason. He chooses it carefully. Because the focus is not on the person. The focus is on filling and function. Not the intrinsic value of the person who's being described with the word vessel. Instead of making a statement about the worth or value of a female, 
a wife, Peter is making a statement about what role she fills and what her function is. Don't believe me? Stop and ponder for a moment and appreciate the connection between a woman's role as you have experienced it, regardless of who you are in your family experience, and the role of a vessel, which is to pour out. And tell me that there's not intention to Peter's choice of describing a woman as a vessel, a fragile vessel, needing to be cared for wisely, but a vessel nonetheless. This statement has nothing to do, nothing to do with a woman's ability, nothing to do with a woman's worth, and it is in no way, shape, or form a comparison of her with a man. It is a statement of her value and a statement of her role and the care that should be taken to ensure that she is filled properly and able to pour out properly. Period. All right, I'll go with that. (laughs) Message number three. Honor your wife as your equal spiritual blessing. Peter concludes verse seven by saying, Well, we have to bring showing honor back in because this is where it properly connects. Showing honor co-heirs with you of the grace of life. Showing honor is to render the correct portion or value. It's the idea of giving her her proper due. Honor her appropriately. He says, since they are heirs with you. This is the idea of being a joint or co-heir, equally sharing in the inheritance of Christ. And the inheritance Peter describes as the grace of life. This is the kindness and favor of God that is expressed in connection. This word for life is the idea of connection. Connection with him, connection with God, and connection with each other. As heirs, we enjoy the blessings of sonship, today, while at the same time awaiting the full realization of the inheritance. And what that means is the connection of love with your wife is, the part, is part of the blessing of being in Christ. Enjoy it and make sure that it's a blessing for her. Now, Peter makes it clear to the men that all of this has purpose And he concludes with the idea so that your prayers are not hindered. The idea is there, the idea there is cut into or impeded in any way. And the calling is to protect your worship by making it joyful for your wife to place herself under your authority where she knows that she will be taken care of. I'll say that again because it's good. Protect your worship by making it joyful for your wife to place herself under your authority where she knows that she will be cared for. This calling to love your wife in this way is a high calling, intentional response, and continual thoughtful evaluation. Live, love responsively. We move to our second portion of this passage in verses 8 through 12. And I have to stop right here and I have to confess to you that my original plan was to preach this backward. I was going to start in verses 8 through 12 and then conclude with the, you know, more exciting and powerful stuff and the messages specifically to men and women. But then I didn't like the way that it was flowing. But I wrote what I'm about to go over with you before I ventured into the world of husbands and wives. So it might sound like, oh, he's not very connected with what was already said. So listen for how that connection might take place. I titled this section, 8 through 12, Live Repentantly. And Peter begins this with the word finally, which is an indicator that he's coming to the conclusion of a section. He's concluding this section that started in chapter 2, verse 13, with the be subject to human authority. Okay, so he's wrapping up this whole idea of relationship in submission and subject, being subject to one another within the orderly system. 
he gives five adjectives to describe how the people of Christ, the elect sojourners, ought to be. Um, if you read it in the English translation, it comes across as five verbs, but in the Greek, it's actually five adjectives. And here they are. Number one, like-minded. This is translated in the ESV, have unity of mind in verse 8. These are all found in verse 8. This idea of like-minded is an inside-out perspective, which mirrors exactly how he asked the women to order themselves, from the inside to how it affects the outside. But in this series, in this idea is, we're not just thinking the same by being like-minded, okay? We're also living in one accord. So it's not just the same thinking, but it's from the inside out. We see, we think, we order the same way, and it leads to acting in one accord. Secondly, he uses the idea of sympathetic. This is literally the idea of suffering with someone. It ought to be the heart by which we approach and love our brothers and sisters. Third, he uses the adjective of loving as brothers. Now, I didn't grow up with a brother. I grew up with a sister, and she was seven years younger than me. But I have two sons, and they are two years apart. And I can tell you that the dynamic in my own family growing up is very different than the dynamic when I, we were raising our two boys and they were younger. I, I remember asking my wife, is this normal? Because they would fight all the time, all the time. But scripture tells us that the relationship between brothers, this idea of family, this is a trusted relationship. Yes, there might be tears. Yes, there might be bruises, black eyes, blood. But at the end of the day, those wounds can be trusted. Because there's a trust involved in this love between family. Love is brothers. Fourth, he uses the description, the adjective of tender-hearted. This is an interesting one because it literally means to have good bowels. I kind of went way off on this one. Hippocrates writes about this extensively, having good bowels. And it's interesting because this concept of having good bowels leads to, the outflow of it is the idea of compassion. Because the bowels are the seat of the emotions. And if your emotions are good, then your compassion for other people is in full play. And it's interesting because Hippocrates writes about this and then he puts together what medical professionals take as the Hippocratic Oath. And underlying that concept is this idea of compassion. I will not do bad. I will not do evil to people. I will refrain and do good with what I know and what I have. It's an interesting one. Moving on. The fifth uh, adjective that Peter uses here is the idea of humility. Again, this is another inside-to-out perspective. I recognize the truth of my dependence upon God, and I respond to him and I respond to others in light of that truth, that truth of humility. But then in verse 9, he gets into what really is the heart of this section that causes me to call it live repentantly. And he brings up what I refer to as the replacement principle. He says, there is in fact a two-step process. And that two-step process is, number one, stop doing what is wrong. And number two, start doing what is right. Now I asked Greg to read to us from Ephesians 4 because Ephesians 4 does a beautiful job of laying that out. The idea of putting off your old self, stop doing what's wrong, be made new in the attitude of your mind, be taught correctly, understand the truth, and to put on your new self, to walk in a new action, to walk in obedience. And that's exactly what Peter's talking about here. It is this replacement principle, stop doing what's wrong, start doing what's right. This is the backbone of repentance. To turn from sin and walk in obedience. And Peter's all over that here in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. In this teaching, the wrong action, the wrong action to be walked away from, is repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling. This is when someone causes inner malice or rottenness to be brought upon you. Or they launch verbal assault against you. 
And you allow the emotion of how you feel to rule your decision making. I understand. I've been there. And you return the favor in like kind, often with a desire to do even one better. This action, Peter says, is stopped. And the right action of blessing is started. Evil is replaced with blessing. What is blessing? Literally, the idea in Greek is a good word. Intrinsically good. Spoken for the benefit of the other. This is the idea of speaking reason for the purpose of benefit, conferring what is beneficial, and by it, what is intrinsically rotten is replaced by what can cause growth and health. Now, I know you're thinking uh, that's easy to say, and uh, it's much harder to do, and if I do that, I might get punched in the face. Peter reminds us that we have a calling and that there is a purpose. Your calling is you've been invited and summoned to a new role, child of God, inheritor. And your purpose is for living out this repentance, this turn away from what is wrong and embrace what is right. You will receive a blessing, the good word. Now, there is no greater word than the word itself, the logos itself, and that is Christ. We are called to bless because we have received Christ and we will inherit Christ. And there is no better good word. Peter cites the practical benefits of living repentantly in the final section here, beginning in verse 8 through verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 10 through verse 12. And he does so by quoting from Psalm 34. Seems like I can't ever get away from the Psalms. He says, if you desire life, which by definition is the idea of connection with God and connection to others as well by extension, if you desire life to love, and that of course is agape, the self-sacrificing love, if you desire life to love and good days, again good, intrinsically good, moral goodness experienced and shared, to discern, to be able to see the truth of that good, if you desire life to love and good days to discern, then you should keep your tongue from evil. Again, that inner malice and rottenness. And your lips you should keep from speaking deceit. Interesting word used there for deceit. It's the word bait. Makes sense that a fisherman would use that imagery. But the word there is bait. And the idea is this. It's appropriate because when we use bait, bait carries the idea, sorry, deceit has the ultimate purpose of causing us to use someone else for our own end. And so very much deceit is in fact bait. I am using this as bait so that I can use you for my own end. And so Peter takes us to the replacement principle, this repentance idea. Turn away from evil and instead do good. And he does so in the form of verse 11. Turn away from evil, do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. The idea is to diligently inquire after and pursue, this is fun, like you're being chased by a bully. It's literally what it is. You're being persecuted. To pursue as though you are being chased by a bully, peace. And this goes all the way back to the opening statement of Peter's letter in chapter 1, verse 2. This idea of peace is the quiet and rest and wholeness concept of peace that we are to pursue like we're being chased by a bully and diligently inquire after. That is the right behavior. That is the repentant behavior within the community of faith. Finally, with a contrast of God's response to the righteous, who Peter and, by extension, David the psalmist says, is approved in the sight of God. 
Contrast that with the evil man. And here's what we come to take away. Number one, the righteous man has the attention of God who hears his prayerful requests. And number two, the evil man, he has only what is reserved for the enemies of God. The righteous man, those approved in his sight because of the finished work of Christ, has the attention of God who hears his prayerful requests, but the evil man has only what is reserved for the enemies of God. Now, I didn't come up with any fancy, nice way to make this personal and connection point at the end, because if you didn't pay attention to the first part of it, I can't help you with the value of the connection point of what's taught in this passage. And so I will simply say, praise be to God, and thank you for the word that is given. Pray with me, please. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity this morning to be challenged by the living truth of your word. Please cause your spirit to impress upon our souls that truth that needs to take root and produce a harvest of righteousness within us. Glorify yourself in the name of your Son in and through our lives and move us to delight in good and to hate evil. Cause us to love responsively and to live repentantly, to be like-minded and humble from the inside out, we ask. Amen. At this time, I would like to invite those who are assisting with the Lord's Supper to come forward.